His favourite animal is a fennec fox, and second favourite, an arctic fox, but he also likes red foxes, and his second favourite species is a wolf, because wolves are in the same taxonomic family, and at his age you thought foxes were in the same taxonomic family as cats, because they have cat-like personalities in anthropomorphic books and cartoons, which he doesn't find totally stupid, because fennec foxes purr like cats, and fennec foxes live in the desert. Their big ears help to keep them cool. No, not by flapping. Their body heat vents through their ears. Because he says he wants to go fox hunting, you laugh, knowing he means looking for foxes, because he hasn't heard of the other kind. Because you tell him why you laughed, his eyes start to shine with a film of liquid. Because there was no need to tell him, you wish you wouldn't keep forgetting that not everything is for knowing. Hello and welcome, wherever you are, to episode four of Stereoplate. So here in the UK, we're going back into some form of lockdown following the early opening up over summer. We've had today, I think, 7,000 new cases reported. Feels a little bit like we're going back in time. We started this series um, back in July to help Brittle Star magazine to celebrate 20 years of publishing poetry and short fiction. And in this series, we've shared some amazing poems and stories. And we've also looked at the very first literary magazine, a network of writers, artists and scientists who made up the Republic of Letters, whether Shakespeare wrote during the plague, how contemporary writers and creatives have approached COVID-19, how distinctiveness might be erased in times of pressure and crisis. And today we're going to talk about bits of metal. Are we? Yes. (laughs) Metal? Okay. Oh yeah, no we are. We are going to talk about metal. And we're going to start with gold. Sounds good. Sounds really good. So anyway, we're going to talk about um, turning lead into gold. Sort of. Okay. Okay. In about 1450, a German goldsmith um, changed the world. And he didn't actually change lead into gold. But he did change lead, tin and antimony into something really precious. Ah, is this words? This is words. (laughs) And I'm talking about Gutenberg. Ah, is that, and I'll let you pronounce it. (laughs) Yes, it is, it is, it is. Johannes Gensfleisch zu Laden zum Gutenberg. Or Johnny to his friends. (laughs) Johannes Gutenberg. Okay, most people know him for for those beautifully produced and illustrated Bibles, um, and he published them with his business partners called Johann Fust. Yes, and, and Peter Schaeffer. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the, and we have two Bibles in the British Library. We do. We do have two Gutenberg Bibles in the British Library. There were only a hundred and forty, I think, made. And we saw one in Munich, do you remember? Yeah, I do. I didn't know that there was only 140 made. Of that first version of the of the Gutenberg, or what was referred to as the Gutenberg Bible, yeah. Do you know people think he invented printing, or at least movable type, but he didn't? No, he did. No? No, he didn't. Are you sure? Um, I am. I'm fairly sure he did. <laughs> Nope. Oh, and what did he invent? Well, shall we start with what movable type is first? So what is movable type then, Martin? 
It's a printed process that uses individual letters in blocks so that you can line them up uh, in rows and columns to create your text. And you can move it around and rearrange them and reuse them time and time again. That makes sense. So what did people use before movable type then? Mostly it was wood carved into wood or handwritten. What, like whole sections of phrases and things like that? Yeah. So very, very long hand. But if it was being repeated, then a wooden block would be used as a printing plate. Like a bill poster? Yeah, something that like sort that. of thing, yeah. So Gutenberg invented movable type then? Mm, not really. It was first invented back in the Song Dynasty in around 1042 by a Chinese artist and inventor called Bi Xiong. Printing was one of the four great inventions of ancient China. The three others, you'll know some of these, are the compass, gunpowder and paper. And paper was first used to make tea bags and toilet paper. <laughs> tea bags and toilet paper. <laughs> not, okay. not for writing on and not for printing. Okay. So, so all the things that we panic by then. <laughs> it's, it, it's very contemporary. <laughs> I'm very locked downy. <laughs> but Bi Xiong's movable type was made out of porcelain. Hmm. So not metal. No. Now, that makes some sense. Porcelain you find in um, floor tiles. Yeah. And um, electrical components. Use them in um, hip replacements. Hip replacements, and, yeah. And things like that yeah. as well. They're in engine parts. Teeth. Teeth, yeah. Dental crowns. And china cups. You don't really need robustness, though, for china cups. No. No, that's true. <laughs> Except to hold those tea bags from earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but metal is more durable. Porcelain is is strong, but metal's more durable. Yeah. Okay, so Gutenberg invented metal movable type. Mm, maybe. He certainly did bring it into Europe. He may have um, independently invented it, but we have to go back to... Korea, um, a generation before, for the first person to be using movable metal type. So not Gutenberg? Not Gutenberg. God, what did this man do? <laughs> <laughs> so before, hang on, before, so a generation before Gutenberg is making movable type, yeah. someone in Korea is making movable type yes. out of metal? Out of metal, Yes. But, but Gut did, does Gutenberg know about this? That's that's the thing we're, that I'm unsure about. I don't know if he was sure about it, but I can't ring him up, can I? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So in Europe, it's definitely being... There is movable type, but it's... It's wood, yes. yes. And Gutenberg makes it out of metal. And he, he brings the metal process because he's a goldsmith. Why is it so special? Uh because he also brings this uh, process, which um, means it's a really quick way of making the metal type, and he can produce hundreds of these letters very, very quickly. So you can make pages and pages and pages because you've got hundreds of these letters that you can keep moving around? Yeah. Okay. And 
reuse. And reuse it. Fantastic. Is there more? <laughs> I, can, I, I feel there's more, Martin. There is more because he's, <laughs> you've also got to add in the the printing press that he um, again doesn't invent, but certainly adapts. So he's taken the uh, the agricultural apple press and adapts this into a printing press. Um, and this so the press that you would use for making juice and pulp yeah the thing that you it's got a big wooden handle you just pull it round and press the apples down and you get all the juice so the gutenberg press is based on that idea he put some other elements in there that means that you use it for printing and can change the paper very very quickly and you can print on both sides without affecting one of the print and it's uniform yeah with previous processes you, you could only really print on one side and if you wanted a double-sided paper you had, glued, them you glued them together yeah. wow it's taking me back to our media studies days <laughs> <laughs> no, no. okay but, yeah. so uh, and of course that would make books really expensive and really heavy absolutely if you were gluing and, and, pages together yeah and thick yeah. and thick yeah so before this though books were produced by ha- oh no they were produced Oh, they were still finished by hand, though. Yes. But there was a little. But there was some printing going on. So how much could you print then? Around about a thousand on a Gutenberg press, as opposed to about forty to fifty. Before then. Before then. Forty to fifty is a. Hang on, a thousand pages. Over forty to fifty. Yeah. Oh my God, that's an incredible increase. Yeah, it is, and that shows that. Before Gutenberg, there was around 30,000 books in Europe. About 50 years later, there was about 12 million books. Pretty amazing. How many... You don't want this question, do you? (laughs) Okay, so how many in the last 50 years, how many books have been printed now? Okay, so the interesting fact of the day blog... There's an interesting fact of the day blog. <laughs> There's a blog for everything. UNESCO tracks new titles and they estimate about 2.2 million new titles are published globally each year. That's not um, just any any book re- being reprinted. That is new titles. Okay. So if we said roughly 2 million books are printed uh, and for each one we say do a print run of 3,000... Okay, so we're not talking Harry Potter. <laughs> 3,000 is not a big print run. It's not, but, you know, it, it does vary. Uh, then we'd be looking at about 30 billion books over the last 50 years. Wow. It's a good job that the, the type's made out of metal. If it was still made out of wood. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get back to bits of metal. Yeah, little bits of metal. Okay, I can talk about little bits of metal. Um, so Gutenberg didn't invent the mov- metal movable type. What he did do was he invented this alloy of lead, tin and antimony, which I talked about right at the beginning. Yeah. His lead to gold. And that became the standard in printing. In true periodic table style, lead, tin and antimony, of course, is PB, SN and SB. Why it couldn't be L. T and A, I have no idea, but it 
is Latin for you. Okay. It gets back to Victoria Wood and I don't have O-level Latin. <laughs> so this, this alloy, these are really soft metals. When you combine them, they make a really durable metal. Mm-hmm. It's quick cooling. So you can produce these type pieces in no time whatsoever. It melts at a low temperature. So you can have small indoor crucibles. You're not having to put a lot of energy into um, melting down these metals. Mm. Because they're so quick cooling, because they melt at a low temperature, you can use them in a handheld mould. And I'm going to talk about the handheld moulds in a bit, because that is the thing that I'm really excited about. Okay. 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 The thing about this alloy is um, it still exists today. We still use it today. Um, it's used in lead shot. Mm-hmm. It's used in bullets. It's used in all sorts of different um, electrical components. I think it's used in solder mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And also, you know, the thing that kills you could be the thing that prints out your obituary. <laughs> Is that my lockdown humour? Mm. <laughs> okay. So along with the alloy, one of the other things that Gutenberg invented, this is one of the things that I think is really, uh, well, it's pretty cool. It's the Gutenberg punch matrix system. Wow. And it knows Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get it in. I was going to get it in. I got it in. <laughs> So what is movable type? Well, we've talked about it a little bit already, but basically it's just a little stick of metal. And on the end of this stick is an embossed letter. So it's a letter that kind of sticks out. So metal letter punches already existed in craft making, in woodwork and metalwork, hallmarks. Yeah. Yeah. And so there'd be little bits of metal of varying lengths and on the end of them is a letter. And um, there'd be varying lengths, I suppose, because it would maybe make it easier to hold on to. So you're holding on to this little bit of metal, you're hitting it over the top with a hammer, and it is creating an indent into whatever material you're going to put it in. So if we think about these little sticks of, of metal, not as letter punches anymore, but as type, what Gutenberg did was he made all of the type, all the sticks of type, uniform in length and that's really important because um, when you are printing something you need the face of the the thing that's being printed to be in contact with the paper to be all at the same level because if not when you're putting pressure on it um, some bits won't it just won't it won't reach the paper so you won't get an impression you won't get a mark from yeah. the inked mark and some of it will be so much higher that it'll just punch through the paper yeah, yeah. now like when you used to um, use a typewriter and you'd be like typing away and then sometimes you're um like you'd end up with a hole where your full stops are <laughs> or <laughs> or f's for me, it was always Fs. I always ended up with like, you know, that little bit at the top of the F that would almost always put a hole in the paper if I wasn't careful. Mm. So what Gutenberg did was he would first cut a punch 
uh, from from hard metal, from so, some sort of hard metal. He then used this punch with its embossed letter at the top yeah. to hammer an indented letter or a debossed letter. Mm. I know, I love that word. Into a small square of copper. Wow. That is the matrix. The matrix. The matrix. Yes, it comes from the word mater, meaning mother. And I love this. I really love this. I love the thought that at the very core of book printing, at the very basis of <laughs> book printing, there is something fundamentally female. I just love it. I think it's brilliant. And this matrix really was the mother of all printing technology because once you coupled it with the moulding box, you could get, or the printer could make all the letters that they needed. Hundreds of identical letters, just because of this little matrix. Yeah. Hundreds of identical letters and punctuation marks, as I've already said. And all the letters that you'd need to make your words and then your sentences and then your paragraphs and your chapters and your pages of your books. And you could do this as quickly as it took to fill the mould with molten alloy, to crack it open, to break off the jet, to smooth down any burrs or any rough edges. Mm. That quick. Mm. And how quick is that? It was about three minutes. Per letter. Per letter, yeah. yeah. I suppose it depends on... um, that rhythm that you will get into when you're doing any kind of work. Yeah. I, I imagine it, he, yeah, I imagine that people could do it quicker. And what are the jets? When you have thrown metal alloy into a little box and um, it's kind of cooled down and you've opened it up, it's got like a little taily bit sticking off the end. And what you do is you literally just break off that little tail, which is a jet, it's like a little jet of alloy. Um, and then you throw it into what they called the hell pit. <laughs> no wonder he made Bibles. <laughs> I was thinking Dante. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you throw it back into the hell pit for remelting. So tell us about the mould. The mould is the Tetris bit of printing tech. Ah, more so favourite <laughs> words. <laughs> we've had the Matrix, we've had Tetris... We've had typing, we'll, ha- we'll have mixtapes next. <laughs> okay. Okay, Tetris, Tetris. Um, so, so what the mould is, it's a metal box with two interlinking sections and you put them together and they form a rectangular hole. It can be adjusted depending on the size of the letter. Obviously, if you've got something like an M... It's a lot wider than, um, say, an I or a J. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. But sense. also, um, if it's a different size font, for instance, that's it, it can accommodate that as well. Yeah, it's the absolutely. same box, isn't it, for all, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just the box that you would put your matrix in yeah. to be able to cast whatever font or type you want to cast. Yeah. You hold the mould in your hand... You place the matrix in one end of the mould. You close the spring so it keeps it together. Um, and then you pour the molten alloy into the other end. You allow it to cool for about a minute. 
and then you release the spring, open the box, and Johannes, your uncle, <laughs> you've got your type ready for printing. Ah, but what about air bubbles? This is the really good bit. This is the bit that I really like the most, and it's where we get our episode title from. Because mm. I'm sure you were wondering. I was. I know. Okay. Certainly in 48 minutes into the episode. <laughs> We'll edit 30 minutes of it down. (laughs) You throw it to the face. What does that mean? (laughs) So there you are. You're busy in your workshop. You've carved your punch. You've debossed your matrix. Your alloy is nicely melting in its crucible. You take your mould. You position the matrix. You clamp the spring on the box. You pour in the metal. It's a little bit like making Easter eggs with the kids. Right. But not quite so tasty. Um, And like you said, Martin, the thing with moulds is that when you pour liquid into it, you get air bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, you know, you get weird bits of the mould that that doesn't take any of the liquid or anything like this. So, you know, like when you're making chocolate, you end up with big blobs of chocolate in one part of the eggs, big holes in another part of the eggs, Mm. deformed rabbits, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> if you're Gutenberg, you might get an M that looks like an N, a J that looks like an I because it's not reached that part of the matrix. So this is what you do. You take the mould and you jerk it upwards into the air really quickly. Quick, sharp, sudden. You throw the alloy up to the face. Mm up to the matrix. It fills in any spaces, it pushes out bubbles and the type is formed. Perfect. You do it again and again and again. In fact, depending on the letter and how many sets you want to do and how many sets you might need to make, you could do it any t- anything up to 30 times a letter. For a set, you might be doing it, say, about 1,500, 1,300 times. Um, times yeah. For a full set, a full printing set, of type that you then can use to print pages. Mm. And that is a lot of metal. Mm. That is a good day's work, I would say. And so that's it. It would be used to print consistently, time and time and time again, really high-quality print. Much higher-quality print than anything that's been produced at that point. It was unbelievably revolutionary it was the sort of equivalent to act to the internet is to us really the thing that was really also quite astonishing about this is because this was movable type you could you know you'd set up your frame you would print your page or you'd print your pamphlet um, and then you'd break it all down rearrange the letters to set up a new frame to print something else so you could have a prayer book and the same letters in that prayer book get used to be to print a sort of anti-state political pamphlet. Yeah. Or maybe you've got an anti-state political pamphlet and and you know that gets broken down to well to print a prayer book. So what is the influence? Yeah. How do these letters influence these texts? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, um without Gutenberg's press his type and without his alloy, you wouldn't have had the the way that information was disseminated through the Age of Enlightenment. You know, you wouldn't have had the first 
literary magazine that we we talked about at the very first episode. Yeah. We wouldn't have had access to the books that we love. Yeah. We wouldn't have had access to our education. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we come from very working class backgrounds. Yeah. You wouldn't have had the level of education of educating the masses without being able to produce mass printed texts yes i mean it might it might take a while before that happens but it's part of its process yeah what else wouldn't we have had um well of course we wouldn't have brittle star no absolutely wouldn't without this technology yeah because i'm not handwriting all those copies And doing all the illustrations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And talking about Brittle Star, the poem that we heard at the top of today's episode was Vulpus Vulpus by Stephanie Lim. And what I really love about that poem is this sense that as you grow throughout your different ages and stages of life, you have different ways of interpreting words and interpreting phrases. The fact that you've got this boy who, for him, fox hunting is something very different um, for an adult. Um, And just that realisation at the end of the poem that actually you don't always need to explain these things. And that's the essence of poetry. You don't always need to explain anything. The next piece we're going to listen to also has at its very heart um, learning and learning new things and new skills. And also that um, similar kind of difference between what you think you know and what other people think should be. It's a short story. It's called The Violin Teacher and it's by Edward Avon. The Violin Teacher. Every evening, Paul stood in his kitchen and stared into the flat in the block opposite, watching the copper-haired woman play her violin. In the August heat, she played with her window open, and Paul would listen to the music that spilled out across the path and through the branches of the thin silver birches and into his lonely apartment. Why a beautiful violinist was living in a crumbling grey Luton block, Paul didn't know, It seemed somehow inappropriate, like visiting the local pet shop and finding a giraffe. Some days she taught pupils, nervous youngsters carrying cartoonishly small instruments, long-haired teenagers with ripped jeans and poor posture, even a few adults, some older than Paul, wearing frowns as they peered at their music. None of them were very good. The woman would tie her copper hair back and sit at the upright piano that occupied her living room and call encouragement as she played along with their torturous endeavours. Paul found a violin in a pawnbroker's window on Wellington Street. A white sticker, inexpertly stuck to the black dented case, showed a price of £70. £70 was more than Paul spent on groceries in a month, but that didn't occur to him until he'd bought the instrument, caught the bus home, and locked his apartment door behind him. He laid the case on the kitchen table and carefully undid the tarnished clasps. The violin was smaller than he had imagined, sitting in a bed of faded green padding. Its tawny body was stained with patches of darker brown, as though tea had been spilled across it by a clumsy waiter. Paul ran a finger down the violin's neck and along its chipped rim, humming softly, ignoring the splinters. 
There were three strings on the violin. Paul plucked the first one with his thumb, and then the second. The notes clashed. Paul frowned. He traced the second string up to the black peg at the top of the violin, which he tried to twist. It was surprisingly stiff, and Paul twisted harder. The peg held firm for a moment, and then jerked so that the string came suddenly loose, flapping across its neighbours. Panicked, Paul wound the peg the other way, and the string whined as he tightened it back into position. Paul made sure the peg was secure, and then plucked all three strings together. They sounded nice, and sad, and made him think of the copper-haired woman. He imagined her teaching him, smiling at him, her hair draped across her shoulders. He put the violin back into the case, and picked up the bow from inside the lid. The horsehair was lank and tangled, and Paul carefully turned the knob at the heavier end of the bow, first one way and then the other, until the hair clenched into a solid surface. Then he lifted the violin, settled it under his chin so that it rested on his collarbone, and pulled the bow slowly across the thinnest string. The note was grating, and hesitant, and breathtaking. Paul bowed again, faster, soaring at the instrument, The string buzzed beneath his efforts, loud and urgent, and he bowed again and again and again, pressing down on the strings with the fingers of his left hand, feeling the vibrations beneath his fingertips, and smiling as the sounds changed when he moved them. His heart boiled in his chest, and he felt his eyes fill with tears. Paul was playing a violin. For an hour he stood in his kitchen, between the table with the case on it and the sink that needed cleaning, until his hands cramped and his collarbone ached and he was forced to stop. He laid the bow and the violin back into the case and fastened the lid. There was no space in his flat to store the instrument, so he left it where it was and went to bed and dreamt. Over the weeks and months that followed, As the leaves of the silver birches blushed and shriveled and the sun turned to rain, Paul practised his violin, standing amid boxes of -of out-of-date cereal and piles of unwashed crockery. He had no books of music, and he had no idea how to read music, so he played what he imagined, building each day on what he had invented the day before, constructing the music note by note, learning how the instrument sounded when he held the bow like this, or when he pressed the string like that. Practising. Learning. Until, eventually, in November, Paul felt ready to call the copper-haired woman. He watched from his window as she picked up the phone. Hello, this is Grace, she said. Her voice lilted like her music. Grace, said Paul. Hi, Grace, I'm Paul. He paused, not sure what to say. Can I help you, Paul? said Grace. Paul could see that she was frowning in her apartment. Yes, said Paul. I... I need a violin lesson. Oh, said Grace. Paul watched as she flipped open a diary on the top of her piano. Of course. Have you had lessons before? No, said Paul. Do you have a violin? Yes. Lovely, said Grace. I'm free next Tuesday evening. Seven o'clock. That's fine, said Paul. He didn't check his diary. He didn't own a diary. Lovely, said Grace, again, in the same tone. I look forward to seeing you then. Great, said Paul. Thanks. 
He hung up. In her apartment, Grace looked surprised, frowning at the phone in her hand before shrugging and putting it back on the receiver. She left the room, and Paul got out his violin. He needed to be ready for Tuesday. Tuesday arrived. Clutching the violin case to his chest, Paul climbed the stairs to Grace's flat and knocked on the door. He was convinced that she would not be home, that she had forgotten about him or disappeared or fled, but then he heard footsteps and the clink of the door chain, and then the door swung open. Grace smiled and held out a hand. You must be Paul, she said. Paul nodded and shook her hand. His eyes darted around her face, taking in the details. Grass-green eyes, Irish nose, silver studs in slender ears. The copper hair was tied back into an elegant bun. Hello, said Paul. Well, come in, said Grace, withdrawing her hand, motioning him into the flat. She led him through a spotless kitchen, down a short corridor, and into the music room. Paul glanced out the window, looking up into the dark apartment in the adjacent block. "'I've learnt a piece,' he said. Grace was setting up a music stand. "'Good,' she said. "'I'll play it for you,' said Paul. "'That would be lovely,' said Grace. "'It'll give me an idea of your level.' "'Hold on, though,' she said, as Paul opened his battered case. "'You're missing a string.' "'What?' said Paul. He looked at the violin. All three strings were there. Here, pass it to me, said Grace. I'll get you a new one. She reached down over his shoulder and picked up the instrument. Instinctively, Paul tried to grab it from her, but she tugged it away from him. Don't worry, she said. I'm not going to damage it. Chuckling, she carried the violin to the piano and opened the piano stool, from which she produced a square envelope the size of a CD case. You need an E-string, you see, she said tearing the envelope open and producing a coiled string. Otherwise you can't play all the notes. Deftly, she attached the string at the base of the violin and ran it up to one of the pegs, which she twisted until the string tightened. Then she plucked all four strings together. The cord made her flinch, and she looked at Paul, eyebrows raised. Oh dear, it needs a tune, doesn't it? She said. Before Paul could react, she turned another peg. A string whined. Paul opened his mouth, but said nothing as Grace twisted the pegs back and forth until she was satisfied. Then she picked up her bow and, swinging Paul's violin under her chin, played a quick, lively pattern of notes, her fingers flitting across the strings. There, she said. Much better. You know, despite its condition, it's a very fine instrument. She handed the violin to Paul. Paul took it gingerly. But you've changed the notes, he said, staring at it. Oh, I've just tuned it, is all, said Grace. It'll sound much nicer now. This is how it should sound. Now, why don't you play your piece? Paul raised the violin slowly and rested his bow on the strings. He hadn't known there was a way music should sound. He glanced at Grace, who nodded and smiled, and then he closed his eyes and started to play. He felt a jarring pain in his stomach as he pulled the horsehair across the first string, and there was a burning at the back of his throat. The note was wrong. He pushed a finger down for the next note, but that was wrong as well. 
His bow caught the new string, clashing, and he pressed on wildly, carving away at the violin, his face screwed up, his eyes tightly shut as he tried to block out the noise, unable to stop, lurching through the piece like a drunkard, wrong note after wrong note, clash after clash, a miserable cacophony that mocked him for ever daring to believe he could do something as beautiful as play a violin. Grace was smiling at him when he finished, but only with her mouth. Right, she said, running her fingers through her copper hair. Thank you. That was lovely. But I think you'd be better off learning some more traditional music, just for now. Something more suited to someone just starting out, you know. She stood and walked to a bookshelf and started leafing through the books that rested there. Paul waited, not knowing what to say. He should have come for a lesson earlier, he realised. Then he wouldn't have spent months learning to play wrong. Here we are, said Grace, pulling a thin yellow book from a shelf. It had a picture of a violin playing sheep on the front. The sheep was grinning. It's aimed at children, I'm afraid, so it might be a bit whimsical. But the exercises are all solid, and if you want to learn to play properly, it's really the best option. She opened the book to the first page and placed it on the music stand. Paul looked at it. A short piece of music sat at the top of the page. Meaningless dots, imprisoned between heavy bars. If the first two pieces that we've listened to have at their heart a sort of disappointment in their discoveries, the next piece has a heartbreaking realisation at the end of this poem. It's by Janet Hatherley. It's called A Walk Round Hampstead and it's incredibly tender and raw, I think. A Walk Round Hampstead It's our anniversary. Somehow we find hidden streets we've never walked before. We'll have another 34 years, I say. No arguments have split us yet, no aching heart. In a cemetery, here's Constable's grave. But here and here, look, the names have gone. The stone is quite green. In a walled garden at Fenton House, we find two deck chairs. It's only us, and the grass is bright the bees on the lavender, insects drifting. So we fall asleep. Half an hour goes just like that, in the shade of an apple tree. A blackbird sings, flutters into the hedgerow, my eyelids half open to the sun. And I don't know, how could I? You carry your heavy toll of days, and only five are left. Today we've been talking about type and different kinds of type and what it takes to make different kinds of type. This next poem, um, on the page, you can't, you can't see it because obviously this is a podcast, but if you, if you bought a copy of the magazine, you would be able to see this poem and how it's displayed, how it's presented, and the really beautiful, wonderful structures that that um, the poet Maya Elsner brings to this poem and the really interesting use of italics and interesting ampersands 
and just the shape and the form of the poem. And it just makes me think, oh my God, these these types are being used so well in this poem. And the poem is called On Finding the Painted Walls of Bunampak by Maya Elsner. On Finding the Painted Walls of Bunampak. One. Underneath the stone temple, my therapist denies me a glass of water. She says, you are not trying hard enough. Dig deeper. I say something about the hypersexualization of breasts. Two. We are in the war room and there is red and limbs and limbs and my juddering fingertips. Outside, howler monkeys shred the giant copal leaves, suck out their lifeblood. Three. After I am attacked, I discover electric jolts in skin sharp tingling. Later, a woman hugs me. If you are this upset at a random assault, you should get help. Four. I take art history classes. At the R.A. Picasso exhibition, stare at torn up nudes, body stretched and split. Is this what he wanted to do to them? I get anxious when my boyfriend touches me. Five. I learn conservation theory. Remove lime scale, fill up cracks. I cannot restore enough. In the night, I am back and the war room is shuddering. Dig deeper as walls collapse. We're going to end this episode of Stereoplate with Fawzia Moradali Kane's Everybody Have a Sad Story. It's really funny. It has a sad and dark core as well, but it's actually, it's just very funny, very uplifting. And it's one of those stories that you kind of think, um, ha, I like that. Everybody Have a Sad Story by Fawzia Moradali Kane. Everybody have a sad story. If you want to time travel, go to Toku on the north coast of Trinidad, or rather Rampanalagas village nearby on the mountain range. It rough there. Not the kind of bandit walk in your house and put a gun to your head kind of roughness. More like the wilderness of a frontier where risk is just taking a bus through the rainforest while it skids along the slopes, or walking at the side of the road and having to dive onto the verge when a car, any car, pass by. If you ever reach, go to Samson's grocery and bar. Samson, his son and grandson, should be dressing in 1950s clothes like them photos of Lord Kitchener coming down the gangway of the Windrush just before he stopped in front of the news camera to sing London is the place for me, da-da. Of course, Samson, his son and grandson don't really dress like that. Not that we could be sure, as you hardly ever see them in their wholesomeness behind the counter. But step inside the shop. I remember my grandfather shopping Marabella in the island south when I was small in them days when his canteen used to feed workmen from the refinery. I swear some of them items in Samson's shop is older than that and it all still perfectly preserved. Any 
anything you could think of is in there, from stationery and toiletry, to battery, sweet and salt prune, cookie, potato chip, chocolate, and around the side is car accessory, even screen rush and oil. We went there to put up some posters for the writer's event. Speak out, says the poster, and open mic. Share your poetry, stories and plays. Come hear ours. Samson is a nice man. He was going to let us use his front yard for the event and he was even lending us some chairs. I was inside the shop while the others were trying to decide if the time of the event should be changed to scoop up more people for the audience. Samson sold them a thick black felt tip. The shop counter was a wooden glass cabinet. It had a security screen of brown paint stair banisters. In the corner, the banisters was hinged, so larger items could be passed through and fro from the back. Below the $8 fudge bar, fine happiness here, was another sign. No leaning on glass case. Below that was a woman leaning on the glass case, prop up by her elbows. What all you doing? Her voice was slurred. It's for an open mic event on Sunday. I pointed to the poster. Want to come and listen to stories? Everybody has stories, she rolled her eyes. Some too sad to tell. She looked at the floor. My family gone through a lot. Just too sad. All stories worth telling, I said. Come and tell me now. Yes, I admit I was curious. No, she shook her head and both hand clutched the banisters. Then she straightened up suddenly and said, Okay, I go tell you. A few months ago, they call my family from the hospital and say, we brother dead. We know he was sick bad, but this was a shock. They make me go to the morgue to identify the body. They pull out drawer after drawer and we had to look at all kind of thing. Wasn't nice. Wasn't nice at all. But none was we brother. And during all that time, we mother bawling. Balling, holding she had, she face soaked with tears. In the end, somebody called we brother Cell and he answered. He was still in the hospital, in the ward and alive as day. But them officials still didn't believe we. So he had to come down to the morgue to prove he wasn't dead. If you see him holding his drips and all still attached, walking slow, slow. She mimed the movement and sighed. Wasn't a nice thing at all. That is terrible. I was appalled. You didn't complain? We is poor people, she sighed again. What is the point? Who would listen? At least we brother still alive. A car pulled up in front of the shop and waited.
I have to go now. She smiled, a little smile, and suddenly looked shy. You go come on Sunday? I tried to persuade her. She had told her story so good. Maybe. Her smile got a little broader. I could try. Samson was now back behind the counter when the others came in. I stood under the no leaning sign and told them the woman's story. Then, under the line of banisters in the corner where she had been standing, I noticed the pile of newspapers for sale. The headline read, Family pays for funeral after being told of death in error. The sad-faced woman in the photo had a suit on and glasses, but this definitely wasn't the shop woman. Samson started to laugh and said, You get a good rampanalagas Kaiser so say treatment there, girl. And the woman didn't turn up on Sunday either. That's it for this episode of Stereo Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please tell everyone about it and do subscribe. Our next episode is the last in this series and we'll be looking at time and magazine dog years. Yes, magazine dog years. So we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.